guys. Great to sing with you. Mm, so good. Um, let's open our Bibles. Revelation chapter 21. As you're turning there, um, I want to thank the missions team for putting together this weekend. They've done a lot of work. If you're on the missions team, can you raise your hand? Raise it nice and high. There we are. This also works to guilt other people to join, and so we're, we're killing two birds. Um, thank you, guys. Can we give them a round of applause? They really help and serve not only pastors, staff, but our church in keeping missions at the forefront of our mind. Um, and so we really appreciate all the work that's gone into travel plans and hosting and um, events and uh, putting it all together. And uh, uh, they're very patient with me and with the staff in terms of communication and coordination. Um, but it's a privilege to work with our missions team. And uh, anyone feeling a sense of just interest in that would encourage you uh, to be a part of that. Let's read together. I better turn there with you. Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 8. As we move into what is the only extended description of heaven in the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you have given us such an amazing picture. Not every detail, but so much to look forward to. Every spiritual blessing in the gospel now and, and one day, every physical blessing that is possible for a human being. Lord, not only a, a, a piece of land in the Middle East, but the world is our inheritance in Christ. And we... Lord, ask your forgiveness for our great apathy, laziness, fear of man in sharing that news with the world around us, both locally and extra-locally, 
both in our community and globally. Lord, we, we, it just, the gospel doesn't affect us like it should. It doesn't affect us enough. It's not as good of news as it truly is in our hearts. And so we plead the blood of Jesus. We ask for you to cleanse us and make us new. We ask in confidence that you would forgive us for our selfishness, our, our laziness. Lord, someone shared the gospel with us. How could we not share with someone who needs to hear what Jesus has done for them? So uh, we plead the blood and we are confident and thankful that we have it in Christ, that all of our sins are forgiven and that Jesus was the perfect evangelist. Jesus was the perfect missionary for us. Um, he is both the one who, who sends and he is the one who is sent. Lord, when he ascended back to your right hand, he said, behold, I am sending you as the Father has sent me. Perfect in every way and now calling us to walk the path that he walked, a costly path, but a path that results in honor and glory and immortality. So Holy Spirit, would you ignite a passion in us, a greater passion to see the lost found, to see the unreached reached, to give of our resources unto your kingdom wisely, but also generously. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come in power as you already are here. We don't need to ask you to be here, Lord. You promised to be here among your people. And so we just ask that you would work powerfully in our hearts through your word today, um, that we would lay our burdens down, that we would feel a sense of your love, and that we would have much, much, much to look forward to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isn't this encouraging? I think I could read this passage every day for the rest of my life, and I would not get tired of it. It is so good. It is so encouraging. Because God is telling us, listen, this is all going somewhere. Isn't that encouraging? There is a purpose. There is a plan. We say that, and it's cliche, and it's casual. God has a plan for your life, you know. He has a plan. But that's actually true. In the deepest possible sense, God does have a plan that he is working out slowly but surely throughout history, and you were made to have an end in sight. You understand what I'm saying? You, you have to look forward to something. That's how God made you. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes a heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. That's how you're made. You have to, you have to be looking forward to something better, something good, because we know and we feel it's not all good. Something's wrong with this world. Something is broken. You'll be shocked to hear this, but life is hard. Marriage is hard. School can be hard. Parenting, hard. Winter in some places of the world is hard. Maybe not in Brazil. We don't want to talk about that. Please don't bring up the weather. I don't want to hear about, oh, you know, it gets to 40 or 50 in the summer and Wesley, you are welcome to stay. It won't take very long. Relationships are hard. 
A lot of things are hard work, and you need to know that it means something, that there's a point. It's not meaningless. There is a purpose. This is it. This is it. This is the end for which the world was created. This is the destiny of every Christian. You know, there's so much value in reading the saints who have gone before us. Dead people, basically. Yes, at times you read them and you want them to just write like a coherent thought or please don't, can you not do a run-on sentence? Did they not care about that in the, you know, 17th and 18th century? Like just one clear thought, okay? I read these old guys and it's like seven huge theological ideas in a sentence. And I just, I, it can be a struggle. It's hard, but it's worth it. We need them. I mean, Chase got someone to buy a John Bunyan book just through announcements last week. If that doesn't tell me God is working, I don't know what does. In other news, Chase will be doing announcements henceforth every week. There's an old saint named Gerhardus Voss. If you're looking for a boy name, you might want to consider that. Uh, Gerhardus is a good one. And he's taught me a lot, particularly about how to read my Bible. The story from Genesis to Revelation, how it unfolds, God's working in history, bringing this great plan to fruition, Um, what some call biblical theology. That's kind of the technical word for it. Um, And yes, he's Dutch, in case you're wondering. If you want to picture Gerhardus Voss, just, you know, that nice beard, like a Dylan beard. You actually look a lot like him right now. The bifocals on the edge of the nose, if you had a pipe, it'd be perfect. Sitting on the front porch with the old family Bible, that's him. But in my reading, I came across a great statement he made. Eschatology precedes soteriology. Eschatology precedes soteriology, meaning the goal, the end, came before salvation in God's mind. God had a plan, God had an end in mind, a goal, a purpose, a result that preceded anybody getting saved because you only need to get saved because of sin. And sin came after creation. The only reason that we need Jesus Christ as Savior is because of sin. But the goal was always Revelation 21. God dwelling with His people in righteousness, peace, safety forever. That was always the goal. Salvation just became a means to that end. Does that make sense? Salvation isn't just random blessings, guys, as good as they are. You know, God is like, here, have some forgiveness of sins. That's nice. Here. Have my presence to cheer and to guide you. That's nice. Here, be adopted. Well, that's a good thing. No, it's all to a particular end. We are saved unto something. We are saved from something, but we are saved to something. From the wrath of God to the glory of God. When Paul says, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that doesn't just mean that we sinned. It means there was a glory we were meant for that we fell short of in the garden and ever since. 
this is it. This is the end. And John gives it here in summary form in these eight verses. And we're going to get more detail to come. The new Jerusalem. The holy city. The new garden. A lot of garden imagery, language. We're not going back though, guys. We're going forward. We're not just going back to Eden. We're going to a better Eden where there is no possibility of sin. There's no tree of testing. As I said, this is the longest, most extended, really the only thing like it in Scripture when we're talking about a description of heaven. And it has the power to give you hope in every hard thing. If I went around and talked to each one of you, everybody's got something hard. Everybody's got something that hurts. Everybody's got pressure, burdens, pain. This has power to function in your life, to give you hope so that you don't quit. Many people quit. Will you be a conqueror or a coward? That's the decision that the text calls you to. Will you conquer in faith or will you shrink back in fear? Will you press through the hard because you have hope or will you give up because what's the point? Might as well indulge. Might as well just give in to my sin. This is too hard. And it feels like it's never going to end. It is going to end. Two points. Number one, John sees the future. Number two, God speaks in the present. John gets a vision of the future and then God speaks directly to us in the present. Verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, I don't think this means there's literally no oceans in the new earth. Um, the sea in the Bible is often figurative for evil, chaos. It has a meaning, um, but the original hearers would have understood that. It's not, it's not trying to give you a real detailed description of what the new earth is going to be like. It's saying what you associate, the sea, chaos, evil difficulty, that's going to be gone. No more bad headlines. No more natural disasters. No more of any of that. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, notice that, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, this is probably an angel because God's going to speak, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The ultimate fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, Genesis 17. This is, this is the goal of everything, us dwelling with God. Sin is the problem because God is holy. Now it's been resolved in Christ. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The separation between heaven and earth is gone. Whereas now we believe by faith, okay, those that we love who have died in the Lord, they're in heaven. Yes? We believe that. Can we see them? No. Our kids ask these kind of questions, well, where is it? Where is heaven? 
Where is hell? We can't see him. There's an invisible realm, spiritual realm, that we can't see. <coughs> At this moment, it will all be one realm. We will see. We will see. The, the, the spiritual heaven will come down to earth, and it will be one place, one people. The new Jerusalem is both a people and a place. It's clear. What is the new Jerusalem? Well, it's the bride, it's the church, and it's a place. It's a city. It's a dwelling place of God. So what does the city tell you in the best sense? Protection, community, safety, cultivation of culture. So we're, we're together in that. God will dwell with us and we have a place and a people. We'll get into that more as we go in chapter 21. But you remember when Jesus left and he tells his disciples, don't worry, I leave to prepare a place for you. He actually is. He actually has been. In heaven, he's preparing a physical place for every one of you who are in Christ and he's coming down with it. Either you're going to get there before he comes and experience at least in, in part, that place, and then it's going to come down. Understand, heaven is not ethereal. Heaven, heaven is not just, you know, clouds. It's a place. Jesus has a body that you can touch. So it must be physical. And when he says, I prepare a place, he actually is. He actually will. And notice, who is coming to who? Do we come up to God or does God come down to us? God is always the initiator. We don't ascend to him, he descends to us. We don't ascend to him through our good works, he descends to us in his grace. Guys, this is massively important. It's the gospel. That is the gospel. This is one of the biggest misconceptions about God, I think, not only in the world but in the church. God expects me to work hard. God expects me to do good. God expects me to be moral so that I'm good enough to get to heaven. Many people raised in the church, okay, they've heard thousands of sermons. They've sat in hundreds of Sunday school classes. They maybe went to Awana. They, they have a Bible. They read it. You put them on the spot. You ask them, what is the gospel? They say, obeying God. Is that the gospel? That's not good news. You put them on the spot and you say, what's the Bible about? Oh, it it's, tells us how to be a good person. A lot of good morals, good lessons. And Jesus, he shows us how to be good. You know, if we could just follow him, if we could be like him, that's the goal. That's what I'm trying to do. That is exactly what Satan wants you to believe. Because if I have to ascend to God through my good works, I have no good news. If it's up to me, what do I have but condemnation? Does everyone know themselves well enough to understand that? <laughs> like, there is no hope if you have to ascend to God through your good works. We believe, Christians or, or, or people in the church Professing Christians, anyway, believe 
that what this is all about is God putting a ladder down with a sign on it that says climb. It might as well just say condemnation. God did put a ladder down, but the sign says Jesus is coming. Down to you, full of grace and truth. That is the gospel. That God descends to us, and it's no different, brothers and sisters, at the end of time. Who is descending? God coming to us in His grace, in His mercy. Not you must come to me, I will come to you. Jesus Christ, humbled unto death, taking human form, even death on a cross. That is God doing that. Not just any man, the God-man. You see how much He loves you? And He knows you can't get to Him. We cannot dwell with Him unless He comes to us. It is always God initiating. It is always God descending. He never demands that we ascend because He knows we can't. that is the gospel. If you miss that, you miss everything. What will it be like? What will the dwelling place be like in the new creation? Near the end of his life, Augustine wrote uh, a long book called The City of God. It's a thousand pages, not for the faint of heart. I had it assigned in seminary, and I did not finish it. I will confess to you because I have a family. And I had a family. That's my excuse anyway. But he's tracing in the book the building of the city of God, meaning the people of God, alongside and even within the city of man or unbelievers. So how God is working, Genesis to Revelation, building, building, building unto this great goal. And at the end of the book, he gets to Revelation 21, 22, and he asks, if God is so generous in this world with unbelievers, how wonderfully generous will he be in the next world with believers. And he makes a list. All the things that God has given to unbelievers in this life. <coughs> I mean, we could, it, it, it doesn't end. The list would, would go on forever. He brings up a few things. The sun, <laughs> the moon, the stars, the loveliness of light, the coolness of a breeze, the shades of wood, the shades of wood. The color and fragrance of flowers, the variety of birds and their songs, crows excluded, obviously. Oh, yeah. I'm going to shoot those things. Food in all its flavors and beauty, medicine, clothing, laughter, newborn babies. Unbelievers get to experience all these good things. That is the grace and mercy of God and nothing else. So Augustine asks, when... What will, what will God give to those whom he has predestined to life if he has given all these things to those predestined to death? Think about that. If God is that good to his enemies, how good is he going to be to his friends? If he is that good to those whose father is the devil, how good is he going to be to those who are sons and daughters with him as their father? It would be a good practice every time you enjoy something good in this creation, a good meal, a great meal, um, a sunset, uh, a great night of fellowship with friends, a great Sunday morning of worship, whatever it is, just end the sentence with, and there is something better coming. 
something better is coming. As good as this is, and it's great, on many days and many moments, there is something so much better. Don't ever think this is as good as it gets. Never have that thought if you're a Christian. It is never true in this life that it is good as it gets. Now, enjoy the goodness. Enjoy it. Enjoy the tuning of the instruments uh, by the orchestra, but never think it's the symphony. That hasn't started yet. God is just whetting our appetite for something far, far better. Augustine tries to describe it as best he can. He says, the reward will be God himself. The best and greatest of all promises. For what did he mean when he said, I shall be their God and they will be my people? Did he not mean I shall be the source of their satisfaction? I shall be everything that men can honorably desire. Life, health, food, wealth, glory, honor, peace, and every blessing. He will be the goal of all our longings. And we shall see him forever. We shall love him without hunger. We shall praise him without wearying. This will be the duty, the delight, the activity of all who share in the life of eternity. Such good news. This is why we do missions, guys. The news is so good, it demands to be shared. The blessing is so rich. How could you not invite other people to the table? If you're not compelled to participate in the sharing of the gospel, it may be you have not understood it. Because all who do, do. You can't help it. We talk about far lesser things with far more passion, don't we? Did you see that movie? You got to see that movie. Okay. I'm guilty, you know. I get excited about things I share, and, and to my shame, sometimes I'm just not as excited as I should be about the gospel and about what Jesus is doing in this world. We are right to make missions a very big deal. It demands our best, and this is where I think um, I just want to bring a little instruction because in ev evangelical churches, I think we miss this a little bit. We think that maybe missions is kind of just over here in the closet. And we're doing our thing, and it's a big, you know, yes, we're doing all these great ministries and activities. And, um, you know, every once in a while we go in that closet. But it demands our best because the gospel demands our best. What we have been given demands our best. Three things it demands. Number one, our best people. Missions demands our best people. Mature, biblically rooted, sound, um, serving in their local church, tried and tested men and women, those that you would look to as leaders in a local church, those are the ones we want to send. Okay, no offense, but it does not help those in missions work when you send a 17-year-old who's on fire for Jesus and likes to travel. It's not helpful. You're going to be getting a call. Can you please take this person home? They're not helping. Yeah, it's great. They're, they, like, they want, they're pounding the pavement. They're... they're, they're Breaking necks out there, right? Sharing the gospel, but they're doing it in a way that's damaging what we're trying to do because they have no doctrine of the church. That's not who we want to send. 
Okay, if you are that person, I'm not coming at you. I'm just saying um, get discipled, read some books, start serving in your local church, become a member, um, and then we'll talk. Then we'll talk. We want to see maturity. We want to send out our best people. We should be sending it. Now, not everyone's called to go. I understand that. But those who are, we want to train them and send them so they're actually effective on the mission field. So that the people we send them to are like, thank you, not, please take them back. Missions demands our best care. There is a priority to caring for those giving their lives to long-term missionary work. I mean, in a sense, we're all on the front lines. But people who are going to hard places, hard situations, and they're giving their life to it, we should care well for them. They need encouragement. They need refreshment. If you could walk a day in their shoes, you'd be like, please, send me a card. Please. Please help me. Because I feel like I'm failing all the time. We haven't had a convert in five years. Or we did this just happen or that just happened. Just hard things. I get, I don't I get frustrated because... The whole, this common thing that we do in missions with, okay, missionary uh, has to raise all their own support, first of all. They have to go around all these churches and hustle. I'm not saying they shouldn't raise any support, but that's on them. They go, and then they come back for sabbatical, and what do they have to do with that year when they're home? They have to go around to all those churches across the country and speak and hustle and raise more money. How is that restful? How is that refreshing? I've heard a few missions organizations have caught on to this and they're saying, okay, we're going to fully fund you and support you so you don't have to do that. To me, that's a good idea. They're worn out. Like, how do we expect them to go 30 years in the same place when they have to do that all the time? How would you ever have any time for anything else? Okay, rant is over. Number three, it demands our best resources. Our church budget, individual budget should reflect missions at a priori- as a priority. And I'm not saying just throw money around. Anybody sends you a letter. Anybody asks for money, you give them money. Be thoughtful about it. There are bad missions organizations. There are unhealthy missionaries. There are people who should not be going, just like there are pastors who shouldn't be a pastor. But is your instinct, is your inclination to participate? We would all say the Great Commission is very important. It's on the bulletin, right on the front every week. We're, yes, but we have to put our money where our mouth is. That's all God's asking. Just to, as you have the ability, put your money toward it. Make it a priority. Don't make it, well, you know, maybe if we have anything left over at the end. of. Okay. That's what John sees. That's the future. Then God speaks in the present, right at us, makes a speech. When God makes a speech, you need to listen. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice the verb tense there, present, active, indicative verb. Presently happening, God actively working. Indicative, meaning he is the initiator. 
He is the one doing. I am making all things new. So it's not just future, guys. New creation is not just future. It is now. It has begun. Galatians 6, 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but new creation. In other words, the new creation is not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know, you're circumcised, you're not circumcised. It doesn't matter. You do this religious thing, you do that religious eh, It doesn't matter. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know his love and do you love him in return? I, I, I can't stress this enough. New creation, Christianity, is not about acting religious. It is God speaking into the darkness of human hearts saying, let there be light. Regeneration, new birth. God speaking things into existence that did not exist like you, Christians, and your faith. If your heart has been changed by Christ, if you love Him and are following Him, you are new creation. You are new creation. God is tending to his garden, and you are it. This is what it means. This is what's happening. This is what we're doing here. And God is starting on the inside, internally, changing hearts, and one day everything external will follow. So in this life, it begins here. In the next life, it will be your body and all of creation, made new, regenerated, reborn. And, it, and it's happening right here, guys. It's so encouraging. I, God has been so good to our church. He has been so good. I went back and looked. In just the last seven years, we have baptized 57 people. And that's just a, not just those people, like their individual lives. Think about the legacy of a new Christian to friends, family, children, grandchildren. People have come out of real addiction into freedom in Christ. Marriages that were on the brink are now healthy and flourishing through the ministry of our church. We have been a family to many people who have moved away from their families and come to Madison following God's call. They have a family here. And my, mine is one of them. Young people, there's an energy to take their faith Seriously, to move from significant immaturity mm, to significant maturity. We feel that. We sense that. There's a joy you can feel on Sunday mornings. Amen. There's a joy you can feel. There's a warmth you can feel. I've heard it from people. They come, you know, and it's not putting down anyone else or anything else. It's just thanking God for what he's doing here. They come, they come visit our church. They say, you know what? I don't know if you realize this, but there's an energy of the Holy Spirit when you meet on Sunday morning that is very noticeable. Glory to God. Praise God. <laughs> it's amazing. There's a commitment here to sound doctrine that certainly did not begin with me, but I hope I've helped solidify it, that we are committed to the Bible. We are committed to sound doctrine. We are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will not 
We will not move in the direction that many other churches have moved, whether that's liberal theology, whether that's prosperity gospel, that we are committed. And it's not just one person. It's all of us together. That's where the strength is. Because any leader, anybody, something can happen to them, and what happens next? If you all are not on board, if we are not pulling in the same direction, unified in our theology, especially in the essentials, then we're in trouble. But I don't believe that's the case. I believe we're committed to the Bible, committed to sound doctrine. I think there's a commitment to evangelism. Uh, we had our prayer meeting this week, and Brother Tim Fries uh, shared with us that the plant that he's working at is closing. He's losing his job. And uh, because this is the way I think in, in my selfishness, I'm expecting him to ask for prayer for a, a job. I'm about to not have a job. Could you pray that I have a job? It's not what he asked for. He said, I know God will take care of me, but what I'm really concerned about is the people I work with. They don't know Jesus. And I've been witnessing to them. And I want them to know Jesus. Can you pray for them? Because I won't see them anymore. God is working. God is working. This isn't country club Christianity. This is new creation. Bottom line, guys, God is building his church. Jesus Christ is building his church right here. And I'm not going anywhere. You're stuck with me for a little while because I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of what God is doing right here. Verse 5. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God is sovereign. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. God is gracious. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns, keep saying that, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God is just. To anyone who's spiritually thirsty, and I know some of you are, God offers the water of life through his son. You're spiritually hungry, and I know some of you are. God offers you food from heaven through his son. Without payment, without payment, without payment. What would you do if Sunshine was giving away free bread? What would, don't laugh. What would you do if God, if God, if God was giving away free bread through Sunshine? That may seem impossible, but let's just for a second say it's a miracle. A lot of you would doubt that. Yeah. A lot of you would say, really? Okay. It was $8 yesterday for a loaf. It's free today when pigs fly. A lot of you would be very suspicious. You might go check it out because you're curious. All right. You go in there, but you're like, what's wrong with this bread? Seriously, why are they giving it away? 
you're expecting it from mold, you know, it's not a flaxseed or what is that? Is there a nuclear meltdown by the farm? Like, why are they giving this away? You know who wouldn't have a hard time believing the grocery store was giving away free bread? Children. You know who doesn't have a hard time accepting the love of God? Children. Like if I told my kids something unbelievable, something so good, something they could never imagine, we're having dessert for every meal for a week, you better believe they believe me. They would. I know they would. If I told them in all seriousness, I'm like, no, really, that's what we're doing. They would believe it. That is what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. This is a big hang-up people have with Christianity. It's too easy. Are you serious? I've never gotten something for nothing. You're saying all I have to do is believe that Jesus died for me and my sins will be forgiven and I'll be in this perfect place forever. Come on. You're just telling yourself what you want to hear, Christian. That's, that's ridiculous. That is not how the world works. And I lived in the world, okay? You get what you pay for. No, there's no payment needed. I can't, I can't believe it. That's an adult talking, not a child. This is the offer. This is the message. It's so good, it's hard to believe. And you can only conquer by believing God's promise. You conquer your emptiness, your, your thirst, by believing in God's promises. That's the only way. That's the only path. Cowards refuse to live by faith. Skeptics and cynics refuse to live by faith because I see what this is. You're just trying to get me in to get my money. You're just trying to get me to do what you want me to do. You're just trying to get me to not have fun. Cowards easily accept the mud pies of sin night after night instead of being led to a holiday of grace at the sea. Look at me. Inheriting the new creation does not mean cleaning up your mess. It means taking your mess to Jesus. When we get this list of sins, this does not mean everyone who's committed these sins is going to hell. It means those who get comfortable with these sins and don't take them to Jesus, that's who's going to hell. You make a practice of these things without repentance, without taking them to Jesus, now you're in trouble. But you mess up, you're messy, you're struggling, you're broken, you're weary, you're burdened. You're a sinner, a real sinner, and you take it to Jesus, you're going to heaven. Will you be a conqueror or a coward? Conquerors get to experience the new earth, the new heavens. Cowards get to experience their own selfishness on repeat for all of eternity, the misery only escalating. That's the choice before us, and, and God says, come, come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful picture, engaging our imaginations and our minds on what is to come, 
because of sin, all through your mediatory work on the cross and in the empty tomb for our sake, we inherit eternal life. And Lord, we are grateful. Give us a heart this week to share that, to be open, to be ready to give an account for this hope that you have placed within us. In Christ's great name, amen.